I've got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. This is What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revolutionary times. I'm Sarah Baranowskis. And I'm Emily Yates. And on this episode, we are taking a trip with Clayton Ickes current president of Psychedelic Club, as well as a harm reduction activist, former MDMA study night attendant, and former Students for Sensible Drug Policy chapter leader. He's also a writer, wilderness therapy guide, and general creature of consciousness. To focus only on psychedelics without addressing these larger systemic issues is the only true symptom. This episode's music is Travels by Summer Alicia. All the links to follow her will be in the show notes. If you're digging our pod, please spread the word, and please subscribe and maybe even write us a nice review on iTunes or your favorite pod app. You can follow us at whatthefolkpod.com and all the socials. Posted up on the side of the sidewalk I'm singing about love and all of my mind mark I'm just looking for some luck and a few sparks And people swarming, they surround me like vultures But they're not here to eat our dead bodies They're offering knowledge and their own philosophies Offering thought and possibility Clayton Ickes, and I got to know Clayton when he was president of the Students for Sensible Drug Policy chapter at CU Boulder. Um, he's now the president of the National Psychedelic Club, and he's also a writer, wilderness therapy guide, and just an all-around conscious human being, and I'm really stoked he took the time out of his van life to talk to us today. And so I got interested in living in a van even before COVID, even before any of this happened, and it just so ended up being like kind of perfect because I was working at a mental health clinic in Boulder. Um, and it was really weird, man. Like <laughs> a couple months before COVID happened, a guy came in to the mental health clinic and was like, like, aren't you good? Like, why are you open? It's incredibly irresponsible for you to be open right now. Like you need to close down immediately. And we were supposed to have a big snowstorm the next day. So I just looked at him and was like, it's not supposed to snow that much, man. What's the, what's the problem? And he was like, uh, I'm talking about the virus, young man. Like oh. it was really intense. Like, like he was, he was talking about the virus. He's like, I'm talking about the virus. And then he kind of like stormed off. I'm like, and I dismissed it. Like I wholly dismissed it three weeks a month before anybody even knew of COVID. Like I didn't even, it wasn't even on my radar. And this guy had like worked, I mean, he had worked himself into somewhat of a paranoid frenzy over it, but like the fucked up thing is he was right. <laughs> right? Like he was, he was correct. And so COVID, COVID hit and you know, yeah, yeah. I, I think about that guy a lot because I'm like, okay, well, that's one of the people that that's this is the here. Here is a person that's a society has said is like crazy that because of the way that he behaves, society says that he's like a lunatic, that he's crazy. Um, but he was right. He was right. Everybody else, because of our like uh, blase attitude or whatever it was, like it was a lack of awareness. Like his particular affliction wasn't caused by inadequate awareness. It was like an abundance of awareness exceeding that of the people around him, exceeding that of everybody at the mental health clinic that day. Like he was fucking right. And so I'm like, oh man, how many people, how many people that society says are crazy? At least some portion of those people are probably right. Uh, The thing that it makes me think about is that these people very clearly are perceiving more than the rest of us, but the place where they're getting hung up is like how to communicate about what they're perceiving because if this guy was was able to come into your clinic and say young man do you know about this virus and have you heard about this and like talk to you in a very calm cool and collected you know rational sounding linear dialogue type of way um you might have listened to him and so I think I think it's interesting how certain filters, like the communication filters, are not happening in alignment with the perception filters. <laughs> the interesting correlation of when people are extra perceptive, but 
haven't figured out the most efficient way to communicate the things they're perceiving so that more people can understand. Yeah, that is a really interesting thing to be like to be in like actual possession of superior perception to, to legitimately be in possession of the ability to perceive superiorly, but being unable to communicate that to anybody around you and being perceived by everybody else is crazy. One of my favorite quotes that keeps coming up for me lately, I keep, I keep mentioning it, mentioning it to people, but it's from Jogim Trumpa. And he was like, um, you know, the good news, the good news is the bad news is we're falling through the air. The good news is there's no ground like this Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhist Rinpoche who fled China occupied Tibet to come teach in the, teach in the West and like founded the Tibetan Buddhist school in Boulder, Naropa. And yeah, Rinpoche, Trumpa Rinpoche is like such an interesting character, but that idea that there is no, like, there is no solidity, there is no ground. And we are by virtue of being human engaged in this act of falling and how that manifests within information, I think is interesting. Like if, if that is the case and what it means to be human is an act of like free fall through the world of what it means to be human is like, you know, is to be falling in this way, then that would be like a chaotic sort of a chaotic difficult sort of thing and all this stuff would spin off from it so the idea that like i think the difficulty the difficulty that we um the difficulty that we have finding the truth of a situation or the difficulty that we have adhering to truth as individuals and as society is maybe a side effect of that of that like free fall mm-hmm. or it's like yeah like you're looking for informational ground you're looking for informational or like logical ground and it's not there because like there is no ground at all because there's nothing to hold on to. Because there's no like you know like you're just it's just falling. And no, it makes sense to me. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense to me. And I actually think it kind of links to the work you know in the capacity that I met you in and talking about you know changing drug policy and psychedelic policy. Because I really think, at least for me, you know, my sort of self exploration has allowed me I feel like I can kind of navigate these uncertain spaces a little bit. If you know what I mean, like. I guess I'm grateful right now with everything going on that I've done psychedelics because it's a very psychedelic time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it does feel like it prepares one for chaos. It really prepares a person for like chaos and unknowing, like being okay with not knowing, being okay with being uncertain. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, watching the mind, watching the mind pull for simplicity. I've been watching my mind. My mind's always wanting to do that. It's always wanting to like pull towards the simple answer or the thing that's like, it just seems right. Like, with psychedelics they came into my life through the gate of problematic substance use Mm -hmm. like i was a i was i was an iv drug user when i was 17 i was shooting up bath salts like mdpv and methadrone i was saying yes to all drugs and if i wasn't if i wouldn't have been saying yes to all drugs psychedelics wouldn't have come into my life and the the story is like really complicated and there's a lot to it on one hand of the story it was like oh psychedelics brought me out of problematic substance use Mm -hmm. But the truth of it is so much more complicated to say that it like it was psychedelics alone isn't even I'm, it's tempting even now to be like it was psychedelics. Psychedelics were the thing that brought me out of a problematic relationship with substances. And to a degree, that's true, like on the on a sort of like wide stroke informational brush. But a lot of other stuff happened along the way. And it's I've just noticed this tendency in my mind even to like talk about psychedelics as inherently one thing or talk about psychedelics as like this is this is something that's going to save the world. This is something that's going to save the, that's going to bring us out of our stupor. Mm-hmm. That's going to bring us out of our haze. Cause it brought me out of my haze. So there's this like a tendency to, a tendency to revert to, I guess like generalizations or hasty characterizations. Yeah. of psychedelics on both sides. Like it's been happening. It's been happening on the other side for a long time where it's like psychedelics are evil. Psychedelics are bad, but it's like that same mechanism of sloppy thinking is just like, sort of gets turned around sometimes maybe it's compensatory maybe there needs to be like a compensatory rhetorical swing but i've noticed in myself sometimes and and in other people that are interested in the in the psychedelic phenomenon the tendency to the tendency to be like these are going to save the world and they can do nothing but save the world like these a psychedelic psychedelics being integrated into the culture can do nothing but save the world and i think like like maybe I'm really hopeful. It's why I'm interested in them. I think they have a lot of potential, but it's disingenuine and intellectually lazy to be like, they're inherently peacemakers. Like they can do nothing but save the world. They can do nothing but save the world. I think there are lots of potential paths. I think like psychedelic utopia is one potential path, but it, you know, barreling, barreling blindly doesn't, uh, doesn't guarantee that we, that we make it to that path. Well, there was that really good article. I think I sent you in salon. Um, 
Shout out to my friend Sarah for sending me that article about, you know, kind of like, let's not deny the history of psychedelics being used as a tool of state oppression, whether it was MK Ultra or what happened to Elijah McLean and Aurora, you know, with ketamine. Like, I think that that's kind of an interesting blind spot that I'm glad to see some people are starting to wrestle with in the psychedelic community and kind of, you know, the relative privilege of being able to have these conversations. So I was kind of curious what your thoughts are on that and if Psychedelic Club has been doing any work around that. I mean, it's sort of, I guess I think of it, I'm like, well, what's the allegiance to? Is mm -hmm. the allegiance to psychedelics or is, is the allegiance to truth? Mm -hmm. Because if the allegiance is to psychedelics, then we're engaged in this like propaganda campaign. You know, if the, if the allegiance is to psychedelics, then we engage in this sort of like semi-disingenuous propaganda campaign where we paint psychedelics as necessarily being capable of saving ourselves individually and the world collectively. Yeah. I feel a thing inside of myself that's like, yeah, yeah, fuck you. All of your like 60 years of bad information and no research, like, fuck you. My answer to you, my defiant answer to you is to engage in a propaganda campaign and spread nothing but the most rose-colored, you know, the most rose-colored descriptions of what psychedelics do and what they are. Like, I noticed that inside of myself as sort of like a defiant yeah, it, it's a defiant compensatory impulse. Really? Um, but like if, if allegiance is to truth, if our allegiance is to truth and not in fact just psychedelics, then, then we find ourselves in different terrain. We find ourselves in different territory because the truth about psychedelics is that they're not, they have not always been used um, for positive things and they don't inherit. It's not like it's a, it's not like it's humanistic philosophy just waiting to be downloaded. It's not like you, you hit the download button by taking LSD or by taking psilocybin and then all of a sudden you're Gandhi or you're a peace advocate. That's just, that's not the case. Like you said, there have been lots of egregious, egregious examples of psychedelics being used for, you know, dark, dark things. I think about one of the most striking examples is uh, there's this Japanese death cult, uh, Om Shinrikyo. Were they the ones that did the attack on the subway or is that another Japanese death yeah. cult? Yeah, yeah, that was them. So yeah, <laughs> Om Shinrikyo committed like three sarin gas attacks against the Tokyo subway system. And they were all, they were known for like manufacturing LSD and taking it all the time. Yeah, they were really high on acid all of the time and they committed like sarin gas attacks. So it, you know, directly flies in the face of this uh, psychedelic. It's, I, I've been writing about this. It's like an article that I'm writing right now, actually. The title of the article is Do Psychedelics Make Us More Peaceful? But it's spun out to so many more different directions. And it's like, there's a, a psychedelics as savior attitude that's present in the world right now, that's present in the psychedelic space, like psychedelics as savior. I don't know if it's a remnant of our like Bible-soaked culture. Mm -hmm. I think it might be a remnant of like our Bible story soaked culture. Like the story of the Bible is just so deeply soaked into our minds that we're perceiving psychedelics as savior. We're like unconsciously fitting this new thing into this old story that we're not even aware that we hold. It's really refreshing to hear you talk like this because I feel like the, the conversation that a lot of us can be afraid to have around psychedelics is what they actually or what they actually do. And how they actually affect the brain objectively and how that plays out differently in different people. And, um, you know, some people uh, will have all of their, you know, inhibitors sort of released <laughs> and, um, and it makes them, you know, more, more prone to nonviolence or being, um, being still or meditative and some people will have that happen and it'll like have the result of being consumed in fear and anger it you know depending on what they're already on the trajectory for um I think that that part of the reason why it's so it's so interesting to me to see all these studies coming out is because it's not just shedding light on the helpful things that these substances can do, but it's showing how complex the brain is and how every brain processes all this stuff differently. Yeah. I mean, like research is complex, but gossip is simple. And there's a sort of like psychedelic, psychedelic gossip. We like talking about things that are extreme and new. And I think like, I feel like there are two sort of, I want to call them competing, but there's no competition. I mean, one of them is just clearly the case and one of them is clearly not. The way that I think about it is like the, these two theories of psychedelic action that get spoken about um or implied by the way that people talk about psychedelics one of them i call it the like acid in the water hypothesis or the uh like yeah the acid in the water hypothesis or mere exposure mm -hmm. the idea being that like 
oh, just put acid in the water. Like that'll solve all of our problems, right? If we just dose all the politicians and dose everyone, like that'll, that'll solve all the problems. I've fallen into this trap before. I've thought this before. Well, yeah, it's, yeah. it's so fun. It's so fun. <laughs> it's right. really fun. It's fun. It's fun. It's sexy mm-hmm. and probably disingenuous, mm-hmm. you know, and probably not true. Um, the, other, the other competing theory is like Groff's. Stanislav Grof, the founder of transpersonal psychology, he calls psychedelics non-specific amplifiers. Mm-hmm. His metaphor is that you know psychedelics do psychedelics are to psychology what the telescope is to astronomy and what the microscope is to biology. That they make clear what's already there. They reveal things that are already there. And we know that there are studies on like suggestibility and openness. Like trait openness is increased by a psychedelic experience. Suggestibility is increased. And those results are, are durative, like durable. They last for a long time after the completion of the study. And so like openness, suggestibility in the hands of a skillful clinician, that's stuff that's really conducive to healing. Openness and suggestibility are conducive to healing trauma and moving past anxieties and moving past all sorts of things, making yourself a better, more whole person. In the hands of a Japanese death cult, openness and suggestibility might not be such good things. Or in the hands of, yeah, warmongering politicians or, yeah, egocentric community organizers or people who you think of as the good guys. Totally. Even. Yeah, yeah they, thanks for bringing that. I was using like the two most extreme ends of the spectrum that I can think of. <laughs> well, I love I, no, I, it, yeah, it, I, it, makes, it makes so much yeah. sense to do that. We have a hard time talk, talking around and accepting multiple truths that seem like they're in conflict with one another. But I think one thing that psychedelic use has um, helped me with is the ability to hold multiple truths and to see multiple realities as being valid. Uh, at the same time, you know, it's, I think it's, it is, it's a more powerful illustration to speak in like these extremes, but it's in the, in the gray area, I think, is where a lot of the conversation actually happens and the constructiveness happens. That's one of the things that I'm really excited about, like that if if psychedelics do nothing but increase our ability to hold multiple truths at the same time, then like that alone could be revolutionary. They do so much more. But, you know, if even even if they only increased our ability to look at things like a little bit more skeptically, that that alone would be uh, would be incredible. The examples are so fun, though. The examples are just like I keep thinking about Mike Tyson and like his. Have you, have you seen Have you seen Mike Tyson's interviews about DMT? There's an ESPN. Wow. There's an interview on ESPN. Really? Of Mike Tyson talking about smoking five meo DMT. Oh wow! <laughs> and and like he's like yeah, I just he's talking like a Buddhist monk. Mike Tyson, you're biting, face punching. Mike Tyson is like the ego's <laughs> just is like the ego's just an illusion. <laughs> like that was a, that was a quote from him like the ego is nothing it's an illusion like mike tyson said that after five meo dmt on espn i think it's those examples that draw us into intellectual laziness it's like the, the intensity of those examples that like beckon us into the into the realm of sloppy thinking but one of my yeah. heroes mckenna like terrence mckenna he was all about the he was all about clear thinking that was the thing he seemed like a like lunatic because he was thinking so clearly <laughs> like it was like more honest than what everybody else was saying more true and that's the i feel like like i need to adhere to that if there is a new generation of psychedelic renaissance like it'll be it'll be really really it'll behoove us to think clearly and hold ourselves to that standard that was painted by like the people that we call our heroes you know? yeah for sure i think that's what terence mckenna would definitely want so or Terry MK, as I call him. So, yeah, my boy. <laughs> kind of talking about the psychedelic renaissance, I, I wanted to make sure to talk about the psychedelic club and some of the work the psychedelic club does um, and what you kind of see as the organization's mission, especially going forward, you know, in these incredibly str- unique and strange times we're living in, but that also provide potentially some opportunities for healing. Psychedelic club is a psychedelic club is a chapter-based 501c3 um, dedicated to changing the cultural narrative around psychedelics, like folding them into the mainstream, folding them into the mainstream of culture. The main way that we accomplish that is through the encouraging of in-person, in-person community organizing, um, the sprouting up of chapters in as many places as possible. We have uh, 
basically the, the chapters of psychedelic club it's funny because they're basically like they're like a book club you know it's like a, it's like a social club for people who are interested in psychedelics but because psychedelics are so intensely stigmatized and so intensely um demonized the the mere existence like the mere existence of a open above ground organization dedicated to psychedelics like helps change the narrative a little bit so we encourage like the thing that i do is encourage community leaders to organize people under the banner of under the banner of psychedelic club and start chapters and do this thing psychedelic club it's kind of like a um it's kind of like a template or a thing to be a thing to be given away like a community a community organization to be given away it existed like empower leaders and be like hey this is something this is something that we can do like i can start an organization called psychedelic club what and uh like the answer is like, yes, yeah, you totally can. And, and we can show you how and what it looks like. And it's very simple. And so it's to like the intention in a more clear way, I think is to sort of like make the cultural soil fertile for the seeds of policy change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, culture holds the leash of policy. The way that we think, talk and act about substances like is what determines how we relate to them as a culture, like individually and collectively, you know. I just, I think about this example with uh, Denver and Amendment 64, like pre-Amendment 64 Denver, people were just smoking weed on the streets before it was legal, like, right? It was so much a part of the culture that by the time policy change came around, it was obvious that this is what was going to happen, that this is what, what it was going to be. And so I think about maybe something like that could happen with psychedelics, not to say that people should just be tripping, tripping willy-nilly on the streets all the time, but like, a, I, I want to live in a more psychedelic world. I want to live in a more psychedelic culture just because I don't think that it, just because I don't think that it necessarily is going to like be the psychedelic utopia that, <laughs> that I'm sometimes inclined to think doesn't mean that I don't, that I don't want to see what happens. I feel like there's something, though the details are unclear, I sense something much greater and much better on the horizon of potentiality. Um, should psychedelic, should we see like a mainstream psychedelic, a mainstream integration of psychedelics into the culture? I think it could do nothing but change, change things. Um, and I suspect it, I suspect it would be really, really positive. And so the idea of psychedelic club is to make the soil more nutrient rich, make the social cultural soil, um, richer for the, for the planting and the growth of a new psychedelic, a new psychedelic culture and policy, whatever that may look like. We're not, we can't, we're not focused on policy. We're not like a policy organization. We're a sort of social educational organization, but, but that's, that's kind of the intention to facilitate more open, honest conversations about psychedelics yeah because i think once you you know kind of normalize the conversation you can have more nuance it's almost like i understand that overcorrection to kind of proselytize psychedelics as the new savior because they've been demonized in the other direction for so long um one of the things i kind of wanted to get your take on speaking of nuance is um they know there's a big difference between decriminalization and legalization and there's kind of a debate in the psychedelic community um at least that what i've seen between what the route is to go in terms of trying to mainstream psychedelics from a legal policy perspective do you have an opinion on that and what would you say would be the benefits of say decrim versus legalization (laughs) I feel like decriminalization is just a step on the way to legalization mm-hmm. that any effort that any effort that painted decriminalization as the final stop on its journey is sort of a, would be sort of a waste, like to see full blown legalization that, that, that has to be the case. People real because legalization is synonymous with commodification. Yeah. And the idea of like psychedelics being commodified, like you can't have something be legalized without commodifying it. You know, cannabis, cannabis was legalized and immediately, immediately commodified. And I think people feel like a, resistance to that because there's this it's like a leftover from the 1960s or something psychedelics as this inherently anti-capitalist anti like society anti-society as it exists now thing and so i've, I've felt some of that resistance inside of myself mm-hmm. but really like it feels like legalization legalization is the only thing that would yield full cultural integration at the scale that i want to see it and also legalization like if we want it's really tricky and it's really complicated i wanted to be available for clinicians first and foremost so whatever whatever we can make that happen however we can make that happen um i think legalization is the way to go but i but i also don't want them to only be available for clinicians i just want them to be available to our culture and used in a way um that makes sense and right right now the way the way that we relate to it doesn't it just doesn't make sense it's illogical so maybe like a policy it's going to become more clear as we walk down the road i think what it looks like and where to go but right now we have a we have policies and 
cultural stances that are wholly maligned with the truth of the substances. And so I think like looking at this, being more open and honest about the substances and how they affect us in our culture and like allowing ourselves to walk down the road of exploration and then allowing what we find to influence where we go with it. But right now we're so misaligned. I think like legalization is the only thing that makes sense and decriminalization is just to stop. Yeah, I appreciate that answer. And I like that it's kind of nuanced, you know, acknowledging some of the issues that could come with legalization in terms of commodification, but then the trade off of that, you know, maybe it's worth it. And what does commodification look like? When we're talking about these, like the use of psychedelics in our culture, I think it's important to distinguish between like the colonizer culture and, um, you know, indigenous cultures, because in this country, uh, you know, indigenous cultures have been using psychedelic medicine, you know, for for generations. As and, you know, we talked about with our previous guest, Dr. Konzelman, and um, I think that when we're talking about legalization and decriminalization, the the conversation doesn't always come back to why these substances were criminalized in the first place because they obviously were not always. Why they were suppressed usually had to do with crushing indigenous autonomy. When we talk about cannabis especially, you know, we talk about how it's legal now, but we often don't talk about how many people are still in prison because the original reason for criminalizing it was to put those people in prison. So when we talk about like how we're going to de-stigma, you know, destigmatize and decriminalize, I think it's, for me, I always come back to that we're, we're working against a system that knows exactly what it's doing when it's criminalizing these substances. And I don't know, I guess I've seen like once things become legal or decriminalized, it's usually once they've uh, the the organizations criminalizing or legalizing them have found a way to control those substances in a more subtle way. So knowing, do you think that like if the culture as a whole knew that criminalization of a lot of drugs was based in racist, colonialist, sort of bigoted philosophy, and that was that was actually the intention of the the war on drugs in the beginning, would that lead to like? widespread public outcry for change like i wonder i wonder if knowledge alone is enough i wonder if like the not the knowledge of why these things are here is enough because you're right it's not a it's not a bug it's a feature the discrimination that happens both on you know against indigenous people against indigenous people but also against black people and mm-hmm. other sort of people who have been made into outgroups like outgrouped the thing that has consistently frustrated me and maybe it's also frustrated you, um, I don't know, but, you know, we as white people are free to have, have, and have been free to have conversations around psychedelics and to not even necessarily be afraid of other people knowing that we use them. Um, and we just have a completely different relationship to, to them usually, um, But meanwhile, the drug war has been racist this whole time, and we're living this reality. And in these times of, you know, people out on the streets um, every night in some places or, you know, and all of this social unrest, I don't see the people who have had the most access to psychedelics out in the revolution as much as I see the people who have been oppressed in the drug war (laughs) out in the streets. So I don't know if it's a matter of awareness necessarily. I think some of us are less aware of our privilege perhaps, but I don't know. What do, what do you think around, around that? That like awareness alone isn't enough, that there has to be some degree of outrage and it has been sort of disappointing or, knowing that the lack of the thing that prevents white people from accessing psychedelics is like, is the war on drugs. And now there's all this attention and all this media attention, media attention and and publicity and sort of collective buzz around the psychedelic, uh, psychedelic phenomenon and psychedelic renaissance, like something that because white people, because white people are interested in it. Like now white people want to, we want to end the, and psychedelic prohibition without realizing that like the the thing our lack of access to psychedelics is a symptom of the same disease that that afflicts um cultures that we don't pay attention to 
that afflicts all these other all these other groups of people. Um, I mean, my perspective is very myopic. In truth, you know, my, my perspective is very like because of who I am and where I am in the world and the life the life that I've lived. Like, I don't really understand. And so, to be just like deferential is the only thing that I know how to do. To be like, oh, what's the like to point at, at other things? There's a really good book by Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow. Um, that's a really wonderful book to read that talks about the intersection between the war on drugs. It doesn't really necessarily mention psychedelics, but it talks about the intersection between the war on drugs and um, the black black community as a whole and how the, the war on drugs is kind of just like a revivification of the, of slavery akin to that. And then, I mean, yeah, the indigenous, the indigenous issue is another incredibly sticky and complex, unfortunate, um, unfortunate truth about, about our world. And it's more than, it's more than just drugs. I mean, it's like a cultural, we're talking about like this, it's like, it's like woven into our culture, this disrespect and the stepping on, the stepping on people, the stepping on other people who are on us, it's like woven into the story of the creation of our culture. Um, I grew up in, in South Dakota in Rapid City, Rapid City, South Dakota, and had always like kind of been taught to fear the Lakota, been taught to fear like the Lakota there, the, I don't know why, it was just racism. Like it was just culturally accepted racism that was sort of around me. And uh, because I'm just sort of a neurological machine, you know, we're just sort of like neurological sponges. You end up like behaving in ways that you end up behaving in ways that reflect the way that you were taught until you break free of that and you become and you learn and all these things. So I, I grew up there and like the story of the Lakota in South Dakota is, is like wretched. And I look at I look at that story as just like <laughs> indicative, indicative of this attitude. That's how like it's more than it's more than just drugs. It's like the systemic systemic cultural oppressive attitude that exists that the the way that we treat cultures that we're not interested in in regards to the war on drugs and access to psychedelics and the privilege of even getting to speak about drugs the privilege of even getting to talk and think about it and have it and, and have it be like a thing of interest as opposed to something that gets you you know that gets you like rejected from society that's those are all symptoms those are all just like those are all, all just outpourings of a deeper systemic cultural systemic cultural attitude that says that we should oppress and so this thing's like we're finding ourselves in possession of this really gnarly, um, I guess like an object. We're all holding it. We can't put it down. And like to how do we how do we acknowledge the shape of the object and what it looks like and how many people have been killed by it and how many people that have been hurt by this, the object that is the object that is the oppression of other cultures, how it manifests, like what it does, the, the war on drugs, lack of access and all these things is just a, is just a manifestation. But yeah, in, in South Dakota, most of the homeless people are Lakota. Even linguistically, it sounds fucked up, right? Like the homeless people in South Dakota are Lakota. When I was there over Christmas, uh, I had just sat in a I had just sat in a peyote ceremony, and it wasn't a traditionally run ceremony. It was like, a, I guess I guess it was traditionally run, but the the circumstances of, of it were all just super weird. There was a there's a medicine woman who is like was married to the roadman of a the Native American a roadman of the Native American church for a long time, and like the roadman was just this charismatic sort of shaman guy. And there was sh shaman drama like that happens in these circles sometimes. And the, he ended up sleeping with a woman in his circle and it fragmented the circle. And so the woman ended up like holding her own circles, which according to the dogma of the native American church is, is wrong. It says that women aren't supposed to hold ceremony. And so she's like opposing the dogma of the native American church by holding ceremony as a woman, which reminds me of the subversion of the McKenna McKennian dominator culture, but it's also like a perver, you know, it's a perversion of indigenous ways. Like you could maybe call it appropriation or perversion. I think it's kind of a beautiful thing, but all these things exist in parallel. All these things exist at the same time. And so I went, I left that ceremony and went back to South Dakota and I had the intention of uh, the intention of like connecting, like talking to a Lakota about, about the about Pahasapa, like they call Pahasapa the sacred the sacred land, the Black Hills, and it was land that I'd grown up in. Um, and I saw this guy. I was like, "Will you tell me? Will you tell me about Pahasapa?" Is this homeless man? And he was sitting there smoking a cigarette, and he started speaking Lakota at me. And I don't I don't understand Lakota at all, but it's like it has this kind of resonance to it. It's got this like really intense, deep resonance that reminds me of like Sanskrit or something when it's chanted and. And he's speaking Lakota. I don't understand anything that he's saying. And the and these people, these two people walk by, and he switches to English and asks them for a dollar. He's like, "Hey, can I have a dollar?" And they just ignore him because he's a homeless man in on the street of South Dakota. And he, then he like they ignore him. He looks back at me and he says, "The he says the Lakota don't even have a word for please in our language, and now we're beggars." 
And so this is like, like that didn't have anything to do with drugs. That didn't have anything to do with substances. That's like the, that's, <laughs> it's like the social blood on our hands. We've got blood on our hands as by virtue of existing as a culture, existing as white people. One of the lines of rhetoric that's come up that makes a lot of sense to me is like, that's come up that I, that I like thinking about and that I like talking about is um, the symptom thing. Like the war, our lack of access to psychedelics as like white people interested in psychedelics, just to hold in, hold in mind, if nothing else, that, that our lack of access to psychedelics is the symptom of a larger disease that is the, the war on drugs. And it's not, the, it's not the most deadly symptom or it's not the most destructive symptom. It's just the symptom that has the most attention that we're like collectively, a lot of the energy and attention of the white Western culture is going towards psychedelics, treating the symptom of the war on drugs. That's not even, that's not even the most deadly or the, the most damaging that there are that people dying from opioid overdose, people dying from opioid overdose, which is the number one cause of accidental death in the United States. Like more people died of opioid overdose last year than in, in like Iraq, Afghanistan, and Vietnam um, combined in a year because of opioid overdose, black people, white people, indigenous people, like all sorts of people. Um, those are like the, all of those people are sort of victims of the same thing that keeps us from accessing psychedelics that it's the same disease to focus only on psychedelics without addressing these larger systemic issues is the only true symptom. It's like, a, you know, it's like focusing on a small part of the issue. Um, you're right. A lot of the people that, a lot of the people that end up expressing interest in psychedelic clubs, it's like a very, it's a particular kind of like demographic, you know, it's a particular kind of demographic. And I think part of that is because of the discrepancy in permission culturally, the discrepancy in permission to be able to speak about things and be able to talk about them and be able to like have this. I think that probably, that probably plays a role. I think just starting to ask those questions though, is valuable, I think for all of us as white people and, you know, psychedelics might be a small part of the, you know, the puzzle here and a relatively small part, or it might be just, you know, one piece that we're called to look at. Um, but it's still, I think, can be a really key piece if applied with a lot of intention, you know, and mindfulness around, you know, the conversations that we're having around how we're implementing policy changes. Um, you know, just what Psychedelic Club is trying to do in terms of, like, you know, bringing these conversations out of the dark and into, like, the light in our culture. I think that there's a lot of value to that. One of the important pieces for me in, in having conversations around psychedelics has been coming to understand that the lack of access to, to these substances is, is completely intersected with the oppression of um, specifically indigenous peoples and uh, the appropriation of, of, these, of these substances by by the colonizers, by the oppressors. I really like the reframing that I just, that I didn't even get to, that I didn't even mention, which is right, these are tools of oppression. That the drug war is a, a tool of oppression, um, intentional, an intentional tool of oppression. I think remembering that is, is really important. And I guess the question was like, what would I, like what about people who have access to psychedelics that are maybe using psychedelics but haven't recognized them as being linked to a, haven't recognized them as being linked to these larger cultural cultural issues. We have access to all these mind opening and expanding drugs, and the most the people who have the most access are the least present in the struggle for liberation um, beyond their own personal access to these substances. So I'm kind of wondering how we get them out into the streets because there are a lot of them. They make Burning Man happen every year. Let's get Burning Man into the streets. Right. Why is that like why is that whole culture not more actively engaged in the open open and honest expression of like of psychedelic potential? And why does all of that not merge into the problem of, of indigenous oppression? I mean, I think psychedelics it's a big class of compounds in each one. Like LSD, for example, has no history of indigenous use. Um, LSD has no, yeah, it's got no history of indigenous use. So if there was a culture that was using LSD, then, then it would sort of bind, it would in fact, in factuality be separated from, uh, separate, separated from the indigenous story. Like the story of LSD doesn't, doesn't involve that. Psilocybin is very different, 
you know, psilocybin mushrooms with I-301 in Denver and the decriminalization of psilocybin, like for psilocybin to enter the culture that now, now we're talking about some recognition of oppression and some recognition of like, how are just the gaze, just like the Western gaze of interest tends to like ruin cultures, ayahuasca, ayahuasca, peyote, you know, we, we just look, we have, but to, we, our culture has, but to look interested at one of these phenomenon to destroy it. Um, and the way that, you know, like when our got our Gordon Wasson wrote that article in time and notified, notified like early 1960s or late 1950s America of the existence of psychedelic mushrooms and Maria Sabina, it ruined that ceremony circle. Like it ruined that culture. It ruined it. Sabina, the woman, you know, Sabina and, and Wasson, like the two, the people, the two people responsible for bringing psilocybin into the West, like notifying like the Western world of the psilocybin phenomenon. Like she regretted it. She regretted letting, <laughs> letting Wasson in his circle, but now we all have psilocybin and it's like marched into our culture more. There's this like terrible double edge to it where we seem to be riding on the back of this all consuming machine. How do you ride a, how do you ride a giant creature gently through lands that it destroys just by stepping on it? Like, how do you, how do you do this? We're living in a time of like really intense destruction mm -hmm. and really intense dissolving of dissolving of cultures and dissolving of respect for people and all of these things like that. It, it's happened in the, you read about it with ayahuasca, the way that Western, the Western desire for ayahuasca has corrupted some of these shamans. And they're just like, like the, some ayahuasca shamans are buying land. Like they've moved out of their villages and are buying plots of land so they can raise cows for profit. We've turned ayahuasca shamans into like McDonald's because of our Western gaze, because of our Western attention. I, I guess the question is that just a feature of what it means to live in this Western world. Like, are we Biden, are we so deep into the story of destructive colonialism that we can't stop telling it even when we become aware of it Has the momentum of the, has the momentum of our destruction, like just carried us further than can ever be stopped or slowed. I think probably not probably not like awareness of it maybe but it's even in these high vibe cultures even in people burning you know burners and people are sitting in ayahuasca ceremonies and all these things like the people sitting in the ayahuasca ceremonies are destroying the cultures and so like i think it's not it's not the best solution but i think we're in a time of necessarily having to come up with like a new something new out of the ruins of what is old something new out of the ruin the wreckage of what's been done we might be able to stop the wreckage and preserve things to some degree, but it feels like to, to preserve, but also to actively engage in the production of a new psychedelic ceremonial culture in the West, a new Western psychedelic attitude that involves the honoring of these things as sacred, but also acknowledges like the destructive nature of our interest you're sitting in an ayahuasca ceremony in the West. You're sitting in an ayahuasca ceremony in like Colorado or something. And, you know, <laughs> and you're like, this is the thing that ayahuasca wants. And it's the thing that some of the, the shamans say, it's like, oh, for it to spread across the world. And it's necessarily a story of like mixing, necessarily a story of merging. So it really feels like we're, we're, we're standing at the edge of like things have been destroyed. Cultures, whole cultures have been destroyed by ours we're riding on the back of a, we're riding a, on the back of a carnivorous monster that is our culture. And so to try to figure out how, like, like, can we tame it? Does it have to keep destroying? How can we move forward consciously? How can we move forward as people who are interested in this, recognizing that we have this, like cultures have been destroyed, but also we, we need integration of things that aren't ours. Like we need lessons psychedelics are such a broad category right like we talked about mushrooms and sabina how, how lsd doesn't have any cultural significance to, it has doesn't have indigenous use but ayahuasca is like a really good really clear example do you feel like like the net the net benefit of ayahuasca entering the west has that or i guess benefit benefit versus damage like the amount of damage that ayahuasca is the amount of damage that ayahuasca has caused to the indigenous culture that our western interest in ayahuasca has caused to the indigenous cultures that have lived with it forever is that amount of damage worth people waking up in our culture whatever that means mm. is there like a that feels predatory doesn't it i don't necessarily see how it could hurt anyone to have their mind opened 
It's just what are they going to do with it? If there's no guidance, um, then it just becomes a toy. Dude, I think I think a full blown psychedelic renaissance would involve the acknowledgement of all of these, all of the difficult truths, yeah. in the same way that a psychedelic experience involves the acknowledgement of difficult internal personal truths. I think a full blown psychedelic renaissance, like cultural or societal psychedelic renaissance, would involve is not necessarily immediately utopian or pretty. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily like immediately pleasurable for everybody involved, but it would involve at first like a difficult collective experience in which we acknowledge these hard things that are true about our culture and true about ourselves and true about the the world that we live in, that it would necessarily involve a, a really hard look at, at the things that are honest, like a revealing into truth, um, psych, psychedelic, right? Like psyche mind or soul and delos the revealer the soul revealers are the mind revealers and so like a, a mind revealing or soul revealing renaissance especially for the western world would be difficult to see what's there um but there's so much growth in that personally there's so much growth in that personal confrontation of the shadow that personal confrontation of the things that are dark and the things that we don't want to look at i think some sort of similar mechanism would be at place in the collective um, that it would involve like really looking at what is here and really being honest about it. And psychedelic club doesn't have all the answers. I certainly don't have all the answers, but the goal is to facilitate a conversation. The goal is to facilitate an honest, open conversation and, a, and an exploration of truth to see what's really there, even if it's difficult. And even if it's scary or frightening, because, because it is, a lot of it is. Um, so, and maybe on the other end of that, Maybe on the other end of that collective confrontation with the shadow, there can be <laughs> like a psychedelic utopia, like Star Trek-esque utopia. But, <laughs> but who knows? It's the it's the confrontation of the shadow. So in my mind, like a yeah, collective a collective a societal psychedelic renaissance involves like difficult confrontation with the shadow, and these sorts of uh, and these sorts of conversations. And open and honest personal expression, like more honesty, more more honesty, more authenticity, like period in, in all respects. Um, that's one of the big, biggest things with Psychedelic Club, just being honest about, like it's such a big thing to just be honest about. Like I'm a human being and I have an interest in psychedelics. We're like, we work jobs and we have things that say like, I, I was in a meeting with an HR person at my last job about like, she was like, are you microdosing? Like I was talking about microdosing. She was like, are you doing drugs at work? That's just an example of, of a mechanism of a, a mechanism that compels us to a lack of honesty. Like right now our culture doesn't value honesty. Mm-hmm. And so a psychedelic renaissance would, would be a shift into a cultural value of honesty, a cultural valuing of truth. Like what's, what's honest and what's true and what's real. And that's one of the things that psychedelic club wants to do is promote open and honest, truthful discussion. I'm a person who's interested in psychedelics. I don't have all the answers. I know that they haven't been, I know that they haven't been the thing that I was told in my, you know, drug education classes. I know they haven't been the thing that that Nixon said that they were, or that my parents thought that they were. I know that there's something else here that is one of the most subjectively fascinating things, one of the most subjectively fascinating phenomenon available to humans. And uh, it's mostly, mostly ignored by the entire scientific apparatus of the world to start to start looking at it looking at the most fascinating fascinating thing and so there's i guess there's a lot there and it's hard it's hard to get really specific because it's so it's so all-encompassing we're all constantly trying to evolve right and be aware of what we don't know and what we you know keep keep on growing in our lives and so i think that psychedelics can be a powerful tool for that if used mindfully but not the only tool i think we should definitely all be tripping in in all the best and most therapeutic ways possible and i'm also sort of like my brain is in like and the fascists are here though (laughs) and what about the nazis in the street when a lot of this happened, like in light of a lot of the things that started going down in the world in the last couple of months, it did like, to be honest, like psychedelic club and that whole effort. It was like, Oh, like, I know that this is related. I know that this is involved, but it's like, there's so much more going on. And I had conceptualized psychedelics as being something that could help, but it's started to just seem like not frivolous, but something, you know, maybe some lesser, less uh, cinema, synonym of lesser intensity, where it's like, God, the thing that was like, seems so important feels when fucking, it feels like somehow less important when there's a global pandemic and in the middle of a global pandemic, people like police are literally killing people in the street. I think the reason why I bring up the things I do is because I feel like having those conversations around these substances is what makes them feel less frivolous to me as like, 
look like let's let's like take this to the next level of like not only personal consciousness expansion but like let's relate that like why is it that the state doesn't want us to expand our consciousness in the first place and why is it that it was so quick to oppress people who were effectively doing that for millennia before white people came you know and and we're like now you're all going to worship our jesus because we make his (laughs) rules you know (laughs) yeah right it is related it is involved i think about like san pedro like the Mm -hmm. san pedro the peruvian torch even san pedro like we have the name san pedro because fucking like inquisitors came into spain and they saw that these indigenous mescaline like using tribes using this cactus and they reframed the whole thing because they couldn't get them to stop using the cactus. So they were like, oh, this is the body of St. Peter. Mm-hmm. This is the body. Of, and so we call it like San Pedro, San Pedro cactus. But that San Pedro is like, even the word San Pedro is an artifact of colonialism. It's like so deep. It's woven so deep into this thing. And it's like, oh, shit. That's exactly. That's where I, like all these conversations do lead when we start, when, when like you said, when we're confronting our selves honestly and when we're confronting these substances honestly that's where we kind of go have to get back to and once we're there if we're not saying okay I get it now I need to be active in the struggle for um for collective liberation from these systems that oppress my ability and other people's ability to use these substances for their highest purpose you know that's that's the next step of how do I get involved how do I recognize my lack of access to um to imperialism and systemic oppression and then how do I do something about that systemic oppression yeah I think you've got a cool opportunity with psychedelic club too you know because those conversational spaces can be really fertile and can turn into action. But I think it's an interesting time to look at like the connections between all these things and see the opportunities. Yeah, yeah definitely. No, and that there's like a responsibility to like be mindful of the seeds that are planted and to do that skillfully to like try to maybe somehow swing the psychedelic. Like my personal intention is to like, if I can swing psychedelic, like some of the psychedelic attention and fervor into a discussion of the larger, the larger things I want to, I'd like to do that. But even this myself, it's like, yeah, I got to be, you end up talking to one a certain type of person and getting used to a certain type of language and then talking to another person and getting used to another certain type of language. And like the language that appeals to one person is not the language that appeals to another person. And so trying to figure out how to like, how to like get all these different people to speak the same language in a way that leads to more peaceful relationships between those things. Psychedelic love on one hand, it's kind of a ridiculous, it's kind of a ridiculous name. It's supposed to be, mm-hmm. you know, it's supposed to be that's the intention it's supposed to be challenging it's supposed to be like what it's supposed to ignite questions and ignite uh you know ignite inquiry and ignite controversy that's the that's the point the point is to be like what the fuck is this and to take a look and yeah i mean and i like that there was a chapter of it at cu even like if you looked at student clubs there was psychedelic clubs yeah yeah cu was the first the first chapter was at cu uh it was at cu and then what chapter started in Denver and Fort Collins. And now I think we've got 23, um, 23 chapters. So you can check out psychedelic club at psychedelic club.com. It's psychedelic club, but there's only one C in between the two. So it's like psychedelic club.com. <laughs> and, um, yeah, if anybody's interested in starting a chapter, contacting me, my, my, uh, stuff is on there. And then there's a chapter chapter request form there. Also there, there might be one active in the, in the area. It's been tough with COVID you can't organize in person like there's no so it's been all sort of on freeze and on pause but yeah but, you know, thank you so much for talking to me today it's been really fun I really appreciate being challenged and really appreciate that call towards greater truth a call towards greater honesty and importance it's easy to get distracted by fluff and frivolity it's really easy to get distracted by things that don't actually matter and so constantly like trying to work to realign with that which is like really truly important and to like have actual conversations that actually matter and that actually get to the heart of things. Like it's difficult and it's so easy to slip away, but I so appreciate being held to a higher standard of accountability and you know, recognition. Like this is, this is about oppression. So thank you for that. Well, this one dude, he was a physicist and also an eloquent expressionist.
verbalizing thoughts about our own existence He questions and your life and the greater human mission Another woman, she talked to trees Hearing whispers from the caterpillars and the bees Oh, she was so sweet to me Call me baby girl and she sang along with the breeze multiplicity of truths multiplicity of truths it's definitely been an interesting um few days to reflect on that with um rgb dying i think that her death has brought to light what i think is one of many of our biggest stumbling blocks we want our politicians to either be heroes or villains and the truth is and, you know, and I I do include judges as politicians, you know. Our they, system's pretty much made um, it that way, so. I do understand why we want to have heroes and villains because it's way easier than actually digesting and deconstructing and analyzing the complexities of each other and of our politicians, but it's still makes it so hard when you really need to talk about somebody being problematic and you you have to tear down this wall of people who think that any criticism of that person is an attack on that person and a besmirching of character. And it's like, especially if you didn't know them personally, I'm always like, why are you that invested? Like, what does it mean for you? Like, you should ask yourself why it's so important to protect the legacy of someone you didn't know. And I mean, RGB is a complicated one for me because I feel like I had to unlearn sort of some of the white feminist mythology around her. But I still really celebrate the way she was a trailblazer and the way she really did open doors for women and did write some really fire dissents. But that still doesn't, you know, excuse the fact that she probably stayed on too long. She's allowed pipelines on reservations and in national parks. Right. She's not (laughs) been a true friend to indigenous communities and people. It, It is because of the the mythologies that we create that we miss out on on really understanding where these people are coming from and what they've truly done in their lives and what their actual legacies are you know i think it cheapens people to break them down into um you know, either good or bad or people that we either hold up and admire or despise and disdain. We're doing them a disservice. Yeah, it flattens them as human beings. And then it kind of creates an unrealistic standard for ourselves as human beings. We have to be perfect all the time or we have to fit in somebody's little narrative box. Like we're probably all somebody's bad guy. That's, it's funny, I've I thought a lot about this concept. I actually wrote a song about about it last summer because I was thinking so much about it, how we all are the bad guy in someone's story and we're all the hero in somebody's story. That's just, both of those things are true. When I die, I don't want anyone to make me out to be all one thing or another. I want my multiplicity to be celebrated and I want people to be like, she did great things. And also was a huge asshole sometimes, (laughs) um, but did her best to to not. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to think what my legacy would be. She sometimes had her shit together. (laughs) Sometimes. Right? When she had her shit together, it was impressive. When she didn't, it was also impressive. (laughs) (laughs) In a wholly different way. Uh, It's all well and good to want to paint somebody who is a regular person who doesn't have much of a public life. And she'd be like, you know what? This person was great. They were just great. There's nothing. We don't need to criticize them. But when our person is a public figure... And they've lived their lives in the spotlight, in the public eye, influencing people. Then it's only healthy for all of us who stand to be influenced in the long term to like understand what we're actually being influenced by and who we are actually being influenced by. If you can say nothing else about RGP, she was a critical thinker, so she'd probably want people to think critically about... Exactly. At least... 
you know, I can glean from her descents and what I know about her and the words she said that she seems like she's a pretty critical thinker. And I didn't always agree with where her critical thinking took her. I still can give her that much. She probably didn't, I don't know, maybe she did want the pedestal. It's hard to say. Who knows? I mean, I posted something the other day that upset some people because they thought I was calling her an egomaniac or something. you posted something that upset people? Right? I never do that. It's so (laughs) unlike me. Weird. You know, I usually just try to make everyone happy all the time. Right. Um, no, that's but, <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I can't help it. I, I upset people. I figure I might as well do it intentionally if it's going to happen. But you anyway. do it really well. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because, like, people read things into what I'm saying that are not what I actually mean. Like, yeah. no part of me was saying, you know, RBG is an egomaniac and that's why she stayed in power. It was more just like, look, I understand how when you're in control and when you're in a position of control, control in this system you are given more respect if you stay in it you know and and you also when your ego is constantly getting stroked constantly you know you have maybe you have your own savior complex about yourself you know and you think that you're the only the only bastion of hope for all these people instead of thinking like all right, who can I groom to be the the next person who's going to come and carry on my legacy? It doesn't necessarily mean that you're an egomaniac. It just means that you're responding in a pretty naturally human way to having control and authority. Questioning that decision specifically wasn't a dog on like everything she's done. And that was very clear to me from reading the post. Right. It's was yeah, Thank it's you. weird. Again, like that, like why take it personally? Like you didn't know her. She wasn't your mom. Right. Like if I'm asking why she didn't retire during Obama's presidency, especially early in his presidency, and, and I'm also and I'm using that to correlate to the understanding that the Democrats are not necessarily thinking with the people's best interests in mind any more than Republicans are, or liberals versus conservatives or whatever whatever, you know, dichotomy we want to draw. It just, and that's a thing that we know by looking at it. It's transparent. There's no conspiracy theory. It's obvious. To kind of relate it back to, I thought one of the best points Clayton made, um, I mean, he made a lot of good points, but like talking about the sort of psychedelics as savior narrative and how that kind of cheapens the conversation in the other direction when the conversation for so long was, you know, drugs are evil, drugs are bad. And especially with psychedelics, there's at least historically, I mean, recently the conversations changed a lot. That kind of idea that like, why do we always have to make something the savior instead of thinking critically about it and looking at the gray areas and looking, you know, whether it's psychedelic drugs or a Supreme Court justice, why can't we have that kind of complex multi-layered reality where multiple things are true? Right. Like if we can, you know, hold in our in our hearts the fact that Anakin is the good guy in, in three episodes of Star Wars and the bad guy in three episodes of Star Wars, right. we can hold the fact that RBG was great and also not great. And, you know, we can do that and we can hold the, the multiplicity that drugs are great and drugs are also um, problematic in, you know, a whole lot of ways. Both of those things are true. I appreciated that we were able to kind of, even if we didn't reach any conclusions in some of our talking points, I think being able to hold space for a complex reality is in itself sort of, I don't want to oversell it, but sometimes feels like really rebellious right now to actually be able to do that because everyone is so like black and white and there's no nuance and there's no room to be like, all of this is true at once when the truth is, yeah, it fucking is. And if we're committed to telling truth, like we were talking about after the Assange episode, then that means holding space for multiple truths. Exactly. We shouldn't kick any truths out of the truth party that we should all be throwing in our minds all the time. (laughs) Which can be aided by... (laughs) Truth supplements. Truth truth supplements. Yeah. I'm not microdosing. I'm truth supplementing. (laughs) (laughs) Truth supplements are going to be the future. 
And, you know, ideally we can use our privilege that we have as white people that would probably make them more accessible to us to help keep pushing the conversation forward around how all these drugs became illegal in the first place and stigmatized and, uh, you know, how the next phase of evolution is going to include education and not stigmatization. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what what happens in a lot of these, you know, new kind of conversational spaces like Psychedelic Club. It's interesting now as the conversation is shifting to see what opportunities there might be as well as, you know, where there's blind spots and where the conversation's still leaving some of the same people behind. I'm happy those conversations are starting to happen in the movement. I have faith. I think there's a lot of good. And like the next up and coming generation is pretty like aware of stuff, at least from my experience, you know, working with SSDP and the psychedelic club kids, like I've been pretty impressed at their like general awareness of things. They give me hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the kids give me hope too. And on that hopeful note, maybe we can uh, look toward a brighter future. Yes. Here's to the kids. We'll do we'll do our best. All right, kids. <laughs> Forgive us if we fail. Yeah. <laughs> We're trying, kids. We're trying really hard. Well, then there I was, walking down the road again, headed towards oblivion, but then I found a lovely curly-headed man, his patience never grew too thin, yeah, and with a shiny grin he smiled, and he told me, girl, you better let go of all those inner demons boosting up your ego, then making other people seem less than equal, that's a lesson and a blessing for us, we know. So I, 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 I put this to thought Rolled up some pot and I wiped off my snot And I, I gave myself a big round of applause Cause I'm less and less afraid of being a lost cause ha, ha. Promise to you mama I am no lost cause, I'm only a lover yeah. And I remind my father that I may wander But I'm just still his baby daughter So when I am posted up on the side of the sidewalk I remember that all of these people, they're my sisters and my brothers They're wandering around, learning things from one another Cause that's what we do We just walk around and we learn stuff And teach it to each other yeah. La da da ba ba da